The Wall Street Journal was, uh, quote, has quoted an anonymous wit who has defined money as this. It's, it's, it's one of their humorous definitions. Or maybe it's not. Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And as a universal provider for everything except happiness. And yet every one of us in this room has at some point in our lives believed that the answer to all of our problems would just be a little more money. I defy you to disagree with me. It is the culture in which we live. Money, money, more money. And I wonder if you've noticed over these past six weeks of studying the parables of Jesus, a series that we have entitled, Have You Heard the One About? We started in Luke chapter 8, talking about uh, the seeds cast throughout this field and some were just died out, some were choked out. And some brought, fruit, brought forth much fruit. But there were those seeds that were choked out by weeds and thorns. And Jesus explained to us that those were the cares of life, riches and pleasure that canceled out the work of the seed of the word of God in our life. And then we looked at Luke 10. It was the one who opened up his wallet to help a victim of a crime. We called it the parable of the Good Samaritan to religious people. Don't miss this. It's a theme throughout. We'll see it yet again. To religious people who knew the truth. I mean, they were raised in it. And they saw a man in need and they just walked by. And then along came this hated Samaritan. And what did he do? He opened up his wallet, got down on his knees and took care of this guy. Oil and wine took him to an inn, gave the man their money and said, whatever it is that I owe you when I return, I'll give it. Letting go to help someone else. Then we looked at Luke 12. Remember that guy who was so, so, doing so well as a farmer, so much profits. I mean, the dollar signs were all over the place. He had brought in so much grain that year, he had no place to put it. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll big, build bigger ones and better ones and beautiful ones. And then I will sit back and enjoy the wealth that I have. Money, 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 money. What a great plan. I mean, he could go on cruises, and he could eat the best dinners, and drive the best cars. And is that what we want? More, 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 more. Last week, we looked at Luke 15. <laughs> Three little parables tied together. A shepherd who found a sheep and a woman who found a coin and a father who found his son. And you know what they did? 
they busted open their piggy banks and invited all of their friends and neighbors and say, we're having a party. Apparently, they didn't stop to think how this would impact their budget, and they celebrated. They celebrated what mattered to them, the things of value. And today, it's more of the same. So I want to encourage you to take your copy of the scriptures. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Money. Not to make a joke of it, I suppose. Some of us here, offering plate coming our way can be a panic situation. can be a very difficult, trying time. I'm not joking. And some of you are accountants and you're doing the math and you're figuring this out. You know what I could have? You know why the neighbors have a better car than us? I'll tell you why. If I wasn't given this, you know what I could have? And then maybe there's the other end of it. They put their envelope in the plate and watch it go by and wonder how they're going to pay the rent. I wonder why God would ask them to let go when they already have so much need. Is God a God who can be trusted? A small thing, my friends. Well, today, yet once again, it seems that the church is talking about money again. We're going to take a look at a parable that helps us see the real value of money. So once again, here we are in Luke chapter 16 at verse 1. And we are introduced to what is really a, a confusing uh, parable at first. We read it and we say, we don't understand why, why this would happen. Take a look here. He, he also said to his disciples, there, were, there was a rich man who had a manager. I mean, he had so much money, he needed somebody else to count it. Think about that. And charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called a manager in, sit down. We've taken a look at the books, and you're wasting my possessions. And he called him and said to him, what, what is this that I hear about you? Turn, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Like that, that one show, something about to, you're fired. I don't remember who was in that show, but... Um, and, and this seems like, well, well, this stuff happens. People are wasteful for the things in which they've been entrusted. I mean, not you, but, uh, but other people, the other people out there. Given a stewardship to be faithful with that which belongs to someone else. But it doesn't end there. In light of this, this man sitting on a seat just knowing that he has lost his job. I mean, what, what is his wife going to say? Or, I mean, what is he going to do? How is he going to put food on the table? And he comes up with an idea. Here it is in verse 3. You see, we, we see a wasteful manager in verses 1 and 2. But now that wasteful manager takes a different persona. And now he is a shrewd manager. 
he takes a moment to consider his future. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. How else will I take care of myself? And he resolves to act in a way to secure his future. Verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the verge, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Well, he said, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Well, no wonder he got fired. Hmm. Then he said to another, verse 7, and how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. He's giving people discounts he has no right to give. But I want you to notice, and this is where it gets really messed up. Look at verse 8. The master looks at what he has just done. He, he, the master now commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And we have a bit of commentary here. The manager has fired him for being wasteful. Well, what did he just do? And yet, now the manager looks at the, 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 the master looks at the manager and says, well, look at you, how shrewd you are. And he commends this man. What does this teach us? Don't teach this one to your children, friends. <laughs> Maybe it is we've missed something. This parable was told to us to make a very important point. And here in verse 8, the master has now praised this manager. He went from dishonest to shrewd to praised. Hmm. Well, we have a bit of explanation here as we move to verse 9. And we are seeing, we are laying out here some principles. In chapter 16, there are some very important principles that we would be wise if we took note of and began to implement into our own lives. And the first of verses 1 through 8 that we learn from this man is this. Consider your future and take action. That's what this man did. He looked at his situation, looked at what was coming, and made a plan to take care of it. That's why he was praised. Notice here, and I tell you, this is Jesus speaking here, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into an eternal dwelling. Again, a very enigmatic statement. What, what, what does this mean? Jesus is saying that money you have here, that unrighteous wealth, there's nothing inherently good about money. 
having a great deal of it, is a dangerous thing. It draws our hearts away from God. Perhaps why it is that Jesus calls it unrighteousness. Remember, it is the love of money. Finish it. We love money. We honor it. We work hard for it. We dream about it. Remember as a kid, had a paper route. Anybody you had a paper route? Sunday papers are like seven inches thick, you know? Like you had 87 of them, you know? And they're one on one side, one bag on the other, and they're pinching into my carotid arteries here, and I'm trying to stay conscious as I can... Worked through the neighborhood, and I counted every nickel I got out of that place, every tip, and I would grumble if it was anything less than $3 tip, I'll tell you. It was always less than a $3 tip. It was a miserable thing, but what we will do for money. Hmm. Well, as we move on to principle number two here, it begins in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What Jesus is saying here is this. The thing that none of these other characters in these previous parables understood is that they thought that the the tools that they had in their possession for their own pleasure. I shall build these big bars and I'll build a really, really nice deck and I'll have the sun coming in in a big bed and I'll have this really big screen TV and I'll shift into lazy and that lazy boy and I will just float my life away. God puts something in your hand, you better ask what it's there for. Don't just assume that it's there for you. So invest your resources in that which will last. Invest your money. Invest your time. Invest your resources in that which pays off for eternity. Make friends for yourselves by means of earn right. I would perhaps rephrase it this way. Friends, you, in light of the fact that one day you will die, they will put a note in the paper and people will look and say, oh my, look at this. And then we'll get all dressed up and yell at the kids to get in the car and go to your funeral Everyone will be sad, and then they're going to put you in a hole or an oven. You're going to stand before God. Well, we're not talking about the great right, white throne judgment of all sinners. We're talking about standing before Jesus. He says, well, let's see with all of the things that I have provided for you, your gifts and your talents, those opportunities 
the people I place next to you in, 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 in the, the restaurants. And, and they, they leaned over and they what did you do? Those friends, those neighbors, those co-workers, they were all opportunities. Show me what you got. Well, Jesus had like 60 screen-inch TV, and I got cable, and like 7,000 channels. And I went through them like this, click. In light of what is coming, it would be wise to invest in that instead of just now. Because your TV's going to break, and then you're going to put it out in front of your house. Somebody's going to come along thinking, I have found the pot of gold, and all it needs is a $600 part. <laughs> Invest your resources in that which will last, my friends. Verse 10. You see, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in very much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And note that right now, you are who you are. When, when we were younger, we used to talk about, you know, the, when we, we get older, we're going to do this. And when we have more time, and we're going to do that. And I tell you this, if you ain't doing it now, you ain't doing it then. It's one of the reasons we trained our kids about giving when you're early. And if you got $10 and it's a dollar, then I only got nine. And I used to have 10. And what happens when those numbers multiply and it's not a dollar anymore? And we're talking real money here. You can't let go of it when it's small. You will most certainly not let go of it when it gets big. Guess what? You don't have the money anymore. The money has you. You were the fly in the fly paper, and that fly is holding on to everything it's got and looking out to his front. Look what I got! <laughs> you and I both know it's the paper that has the fly. Be faithful where you are in the small things. You'll never have the opportunity to be faithful with the big. And remember this, my friends, in verse 12, that you have a stewardship from God. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, well, who will give you that which is your own? If what you have is from God, and it is, why should God provide you any more of it if you're not faithful with what you already have? You're not talking about just money here. I'm talking about opportunities, about a broader sphere of influence, 
Friends, if you can't be faithful with just the one or three friends you have, why should God provide the more? Faithfulness, my friend. Faithfulness. You have a stewardship from God. Just like this manager, the things were not his. They belonged to his master. And he was found to be unfaithful. Notice yet another warning, verse 13. If it distracts you from serving God, friends, you better stop it. Because no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Who will it be? Who is your master? It was just a song just a few moments ago about submitting ourselves to him, trusting him. But where are we now? Principle number one was this. Consider your future and take action Principle number two, invest your resources in that which will last. How do we invest them in, in, in relationships that are eternal? Well, maybe the next time you go out for lunch at work, bring someone that you can talk to about Jesus. That you can invest in their lives. How about invest in Work that is kingdom-oriented. Family Bible Church. Missions organizations. People who are clear and active with the gospel. You will give an account one day, my friends. Invest it well. Hmm. Well, our third principle is this, you will face obstacles to success. In other words, there are inborn natural obstacles to living this way. They will not be excuses, my friends, because you know what front they exist. The Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. Listen to this this poor carpenter over here talking about money. You see, these these Pharisees had had this idea that if you had a big bank account, it meant that you were truly righteous. And where did they get this idea? From Deuteronomy chapter 28. You see, God had told Israel, the nation of Israel... As they were about to go into this land, they are in this land and they are li- that, that if they will honor him, obey him and serve him, that he would bring abundance to their fields and to their cattle, health to their children and all of these things specifically promised to the nation of Israel. Now, I know that you can hear that same thing going on in the radio God never promised that to the church. As a matter of fact, he promised that 
They hated you. They they're gonna. They hated me. They're gonna hate you. Yeah, it's gonna be an awful lot of opposition. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about ministry into the wind. There was a time in history where the wind was at the church's back. It means everything's a little easier, a little open, easier opportunities to live out our faith in Christ to find acceptance from others. It's not the case anymore. And so some of the obstacles you're going to face if you begin to live this way is ridicule. Now, ridicule usually shows up when you really don't have an argument. You're doing it wrong. Well, yeah? Well, well, your car's dirty. <laughs> what? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? And yet here they are, the Pharisees, again, lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. It's a funny thing that this just came up, this justifying yourselves. I wonder if that's been going on here this morning when you've come face to face with these truths. You begin to say, well, but that's not me because I, I mean, I, I helped somebody one time. I mean, it was back in 78. Remember, Jesus? It was that snowstorm. I loaned him my shovel. I'm a good person. But God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They love the praise of men in the streets. Oh, look at that long, what a holy man he must be. Oh, they loved it. They lapped it up, my friends, the praise of men. You see, people, we, we, we judge people based on the outside, right? Oh, he drives a nice car. He must be a good person. <laughs> be successful. Really? How's his marriage? How's he treat the waiter? My friends, you treat people who are serving you poorly, you're not a good person. You're not. Oh, but I am. I, I, it's just that. But God looks on the heart. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Look at verse 16. My friends, the love of things of this world will ruin you. If you love the things of this world, you are an abomination to God. What is exalted among men, celebrated it's an abomination in the sight of God. And note this, not hearing, not hearing will endanger you. I'm not talking about your ability to hear sound. Jesus began this whole series of parables with this quest. He who has ears, let him hear. 
Hearing is not just about sound, my friends. It is hearing the truth and then acting on it. But not hearing will endanger you. Jesus, in verse 16, says, The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now remember, he's addressing these Pharisees who are ridiculing him. And he lays out here, the law has been made clear, and these people, they walk around as if they are obeying the word of God, and they are the protectors of the word of God. And Jesus simply picks out one thing in which they are hypocrites. And he says here in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman from her husband commits adultery. Why that? Why, why of all things, why that? And because there was a, a great division among Jewish leaders who... And there, there were two uh, schools of thought regarding the matter of divorce. And those who followed Hillel, great teacher, said it was permissible for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason at all. Well, it's Tuesday. Time for a new wife. But the other group, those uh, following Shema, said divorce was permissible for only major offenses. In his response, the Lord strongly taught that marriage is viewed by God as indissolvable. That marriage should not be terminated at all except for death. And then he offered in Matthew chapter 5 this exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness. Marital unfaithfulness. Hmm. And even then, hmm. so he poked them right between the eyes. You protectors of the word of God who snicker at me and ridicule, what about you? The word of God is clear in this matter. And then he tells yet another parable here in verse 19 which provides for us the last principle of this text, which is this. The consequence of success and failure in this matter are eternal. The consequences of success or failure in living for God are eternal. And he talks about this rich man in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. Now, purple being specified here indicates that there was a dye that was very expensive. And he was clothed in purple and he had fine linen. And Jesus says, and he feasted sumptuously every day. He feasted sumptuously. Everybody say sumptuously. <laughs> You don't even know what it means, and it sounds bad. It means he ate a lot, and he ate in front of everyone. 
He wanted everyone to see all of the morsels on his table. You already have an opinion about this man, don't you? In verse 20, we see at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, and he was covered with sores. So we have this wealthy man who is well-fed in verse 19, but here in verses 20 and 21, we see this, <coughs> this poor man named Lazarus, and he's covered with sores. And not only that, he's starving. I mean, he desired to be fed with what fell from this rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And those of you that have dogs, you know, dogs tend to do that. I don't know why they always seem to have a cut on my hand somewhere. And but we're not talking about those adore little, little puppies with the big cheeks and, you know, the ears way up here. These were, were, were dogs that roamed the streets and were nasty and dirty and filthy. It was not a pleasurable thing to think about. And so here's this wealthy man with all of these opportunities before him, including a guy sitting at the gate... He was poor and hungry and sick. And they die. Big abrupt cut to the story here. The poor man died, verse 22, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And this is also referenced as paradise. Old Testament saints, uh, Old Testament saints after their death waiting for the resurrection of Christ. This, this place, Hades, it was a two-compartment location awaiting a future day. The first compartment we read about, you know, is Abraham's side, you know. And the rich man also died, but he was buried, you see. It was probably a big funeral, and all the important people in town were there. They probably had a really big meal, you know, and people making much about this guy. Lazarus probably threw his body in a burning dump, garbage dump. But I want you to notice, while they both died, they had a very different eternity. The rich man we find is in torments. Verse 23, and in Hades, the abode of the unsaved dead, prior to a great white throne judgment, we're not talking about hell, we're just talking about its waiting room. And being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Why? why? Why is this guy in torment? You may recall that 1 John 3.17 tells us that if anyone has the, words go the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, he has the world's goods. He has the resources. And what we're going to find out is he knew this guy's name. He knew Lazarus' name. 
How do we know that? Look at verse 24. The rich man here is now crying out for mercy, and there's some irony, by the way. This guy, who apparently didn't have an ounce of mercy in him, now wants some. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And he had this idea. And send Lazarus to, to dip the end of his finger in some water to cool off my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. And so we see that not much has changed for this guy, except he has gone from the lap of luxury to a great deal of agony. Contrasted here in verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, received your good things. Remember all those things you had. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And beside all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Don't miss this, my friend. Do not miss this. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. Hmm. There's a prayer and a great deal of agony that ought to take place perhaps in the church. I have five brothers. Send someone. They don't end up in this place. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament here. Let them hear them. And he said, no, 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 Father. But if someone goes to them from the dead, well, they will repent. If they are shown some great sign, some unusual thing from heaven. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced if someone rises from the dead. If they do not obey the word of God, then no sign, no matter how wonderfully fantastic and splendorous that might take place, will make any difference at all. If you will not hear the word of God and act on it, there is no hope for you. There is no hope. If you will not hear the word of God and act on it, there is no hope for you. Consider your future. Take action, my friends. Invest your resources in that which will last. And you will face obstacles, there is no doubt. But the consequences of your actions, my friend, are eternal. They are eternal. The 
So what you do with what you have will make a difference in what God does with you. And what is it the difference? Heart. One decision from the other, it is what is in the heart. What is in the heart. So I would commend you to do a self-audit and ask yourself honestly, how am I investing in that which will last? How am I investing the resources that God has placed in my hands in that which will last? And secondly, I would commend you to train yourself to be one who hears God's words and does them. Hear God's word and do it. And see the things of this world as they truly are, tools and not treasures. If you have something in your hand, my friend, ask God what it is you ought to do with it. Do not just presume it's for your own luxury.